So today is February 6, 2015, and I'm having a conversation with Pam, Pamela Don, Duncan. So welcome and thank you for joining me today. Thank I really, you, Britta. Thank you very much. And um, I really enjoyed your uh, Anne Shumway Cook lecture the other day. Uh, but my first question was, what inspired you to become a physical therapist? It was just serendipity. <laughs> I was um, um, uh, undergraduate at the University of North Carolina, and I was going to major in chemistry. And I really like chemistry and the basic scientists, but I thought, I really don't want to teach chemistry. So literally, I was flipping through the college catalog, and I saw physical therapy. I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And I reviewed the curriculum in physical therapy and the goals and Margaret Moore at that time, which was has been an icon in the field for many years and one of the first um, truly visionary leaders that we had, um, was the chair of the program. And um, I went over and I talked to her and just found out about physical therapy. Um, but I dropped out of the University of North Carolina after my sophomore year and um, married my love, uh, Larry Duncan, who I'm still married to 45 years later. Congratulations. And he, <laughs> he was, uh, it was a Vietnam era, and he was uh, uh, drafted. And so we got married in 1970, and he promised my mother if I would marry him uh, that he would make sure I went back to school. So we went to New York City, and I worked as a bank teller for a few months, and I decided that was not a good career choice. So I looked around New York to see where there were physical therapy programs, and I interviewed at Downstate and then Columbia, and um, I was accepted at Columbia University. But Columbia was a two-hour commute by train and subway from where we lived on Long Island. I thought, well, that's too far. I can't really afford Columbia. So maybe I'll choose another career, maybe medical technology that would merge my interest in chemistry with medicine. And I actually applied at uh, a university in Garden City, and I was accepted, and I sent my deposit. And in the meantime, I got an acceptance letter at Columbia and a scholarship to go to Columbia, so I changed my mind, and it was just luck. Well, you didn't stay in direct physical therapy practice, though, with clients very long, did you? I did, actually. Um, so I, my first job was at the Institute for Rehab Medicine, uh, where I was, became very interested in stroke and was very challenged by the complexity of stroke. And there wasn't always a clear answer, and I was one of those people who liked to try to sift and deal with uncertainty and, and find the most efficient uh, treatment. So I was very inspired at, at in the Institute for Rehab Medicine in New York, uh, especially in their neurological rehab program. Um, you know, we talk about being innovative today in interdisciplinary practice. That was truly an interdisciplinary practice setting. We had great physician leadership, therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists, social workers working together cohesively to develop plan of care and make sure that patients optimize their recovery. So that was just an incredible experience. And then we moved, because my husband was transferred, to the Medical University of South Carolina. I went to Charleston, where I'd only, this was in 1976, and um, because they found out I'd been at IRM and they had a new PT program, they wanted me to come and teach. So I actually, my first academic career was at the Medical University of South Carolina. 
Um, but I kept my clinical practice and worked part-time in clinical practice and part-time in teaching. Then I went back uh, home to, to North Carolina and um, there I worked at uh, the UNC Hospital Systems for uh, a number of years actually as I finished my master's degree and in 1979 I went into academics. But in those days you didn't do academics unless you did clinical practice. So. I maintained uh, part-time clinical practice as well as my academic career. And really it's only been in the last uh, few years of major research um, center directorship and funding that I don't see patients on a routine basis. Interestingly enough, I'm back to doing it though, one day a week, one half day a week. Where do you do clinical practice now? Well, we've, we're developing an integrated practice model um, for stroke patients and um, we're developing a model taking advantage of the new transitional care codes from CMS um, and the patients are discharged and uh, within a week they're seen by a nurse practitioner um, with a physical therapist and a pharmacist um, and I'm working with that clinic to come in and quickly evaluate the patient uh, that the patients are discharged home directly to make sure that they got the appropriate level of care and services. So um, I'm doing this uh, to set up the practice and then we're going to bring in um, physical therapists from the acute care that will follow them in the outpatient and be, will be the brokers of their physical interventions with the community providers. So this will really help in terms of the shift towards um, low readmissions, lower complications? and yeah. So our goals are is to build um, not just episodes of care but to build a continuum of care that could be up to 90 days and that we will follow them with uh, the APP being the quarterback working with the primary care, the physical therapist in the community and pharmacy and other providers that, that are needed like occupational therapy. So <clears throat> the physical therapist in that clinic really becomes a resource for the community um, providers to make sure that they get uh, the best standards of care. And you're trying to have the same acute care therapist that saw them in the, hospital, in the hospital see them in the outpatient clinic. What an excellent idea. How do you think that's going to transform their practice? Uh, tremendously. Because I think when we only work in acute care, we just see them for a brief episode. And honestly, in that brief episode, we don't really get a full perspective of their residual deficits and the challenges that they have at home. But within 7 to 14 days, they're beginning to manifest what those true functional deficits are and it's an opportunity to, uh, to intervene appropriately and rapidly. Right care, right place, right time. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll share with you a story. I, uh, my first job, I worked in an acute care hospital and then on the side I did some home health after work and it was, I never looked at patients the same in terms of knowing what their home barriers yeah. might be. So, so my career, even in the days when I started at IRM, was because in those days we kept patients for six weeks mm -hmm. in, in a rehab facility, was to really understand that trajectory recovery and knowing that patients, most stroke patients who, just, who survive, actually do experience recovery, but how do we shift that recovery up even more with their intervention? So I've always been interested in that trajectory recovery and not just looking at neurological recovery, but cardiovascular, cognitive, uh, and ability to manage your comorbid conditions. So where do you think the profession of physical therapy needs to grow now? So as I mentioned in the Ann Shumway Cook lecture, we have had tremendous explosion and growth in building career scientists 
who can design and test the best um, interventions. And uh, if we look at these accomplishments of physical therapists in NIH, Department of Veterans Affairs, Department of Defense Research, is quite impressive. And this has been rather rapid um, because physical therapists, uh, and many of us have went on to get PhDs in clinical mm -hmm. epidemiology and, and motor control and biomechanics. So we've been able to bring back to the profession um, truly a mechanism to develop science for practice. I think our ability to develop the science for practice so rapidly has far outstripped our ability to change practice. So I think the science movement is exponential, as I demonstrated in just looking at the trials that have been done, the funding that physical therapy researchers have received. But at the same time, we haven't bridged the gap to understand how to quickly implement that into practice. So the success of physical therapy as a profession is that we have to transform clinical practice. And believe it or not, it's practice that changes practice, not academics who rarely practice trying to tell everybody what to do. But it's going to be the frontline practitioners who are going to have to accept new competencies in understanding rapid response change, who really endorse innovation, who are able to partner at uh, multiple levels in the health system to <clears throat> um, get the optimal delivery of their services, and that they are delivering a product that is efficiently and effectively delivered. So our survival, our success, as in many areas of medicine, will be that we will develop transformative practice. So we have the skills to do that. We have the intellect to do that uh, as a profession. Um, but we really need to develop a new skill set. So is the focus on delivering value to our patients? It's, it's value. And it's also critical decision-making about right care, right place, right time. Mm -hmm. And as I've mentioned before, some right care is palliative care. The patient truly is not going to recover. But you're going to optimize their function, their quality of life, and ensure that they're treated with comfort um, and support. And then the others that we might need to be more aggressive in how do you make those clinical decisions in real time. Real time. So how does the screen, the physical therapy screen fit into that? Well, the interesting thing uh, that we see on the front lines of practice is that we have taught outcome measures for so long that I think the profession gets outcome measurement. But I'll give you a, a perfect example. I'm working with national stakeholders from home health. And uh, their comment as frontline executive leaders of clinical practice is that outcome assessment is not the problem. But the problem is how you select the most parsimonious group of measures and how do you, how do you use that information to inform your clinical decision making. So what we have to do is to be able to develop the parsimonious battery 
and we have to have actionable items from that battery. So it isn't just enough to say, for example, that a patient has a gate velocity of 0.6 meters per second, mm -hmm. right? Well, what do I do with that information? What, I mean, what do I, I mean, it's a metric and I can say if you got better or worse, but does that, does that piece of information inform how I treat the patient? So we've got to marry with these assessments points of clinical decision making and then capture the outcomes in the end. Is that clear? Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So physical therapist, uh, as I, you know, are about function, is transforming function and quality of life. And they are going to be able to have to quickly assess the multiple dimensions of function. As a neurological physical therapist, it's not just enough that I know about tone or that I know about selective movement or I even know your gait speed, but do I know that in the context of your pre-existing comorbidities, your cognitive function, your cardiovascular disease now, or your pre-existing cognitive decline or your new cognitive decline? I'm going to be able to put all that together mm -hmm. to say what's realistic. In a, in a quick amount of time. Very, very briefly. So you mentioned something in your lectureship about, um, I think you called it pragmatic research. Is that the right mm -hmm. term? Mm -hmm. Pragmatic, yeah. So pragmatic would, you, would you explain that? Sure. So the way that we have done research for a long time is that you have all these inclusion criteria and all these exclusion criteria, and by the time you finish, you've got an unrealistic patient population, and mm -hmm. it will take you forever to recruit them. Right. Right. So if I take uh, uh, any randomized clinical trial, you'll see a lot of exclusions. Uh, and I'll give you a perfect example, not from neurology, but from cardiovascular. So a lot of people were doing research on congestive heart failure. And they were trying to look to see if providing cardiac rehab after they'd stabilized for six weeks if it really improved the trajectory of recovery as well as outcomes. And the benefits were very marginal. So as I was consulting with investigators, I said, well, tell me your average age of your population, 59, and tell me what your inclusion and exclusion criteria are. And they were numerous. You know, if they have pre-existing weakness or they, um, uh, uh, don't have a certain ejection fraction, we exclude them. I said, well, you've excluded most of the people who have congestive heart failure, right? So in a pragmatic trial, you have very few inclusion-exclusion criteria. And you bring to practice or the trial recommendations for practice as evidence-based, but then the clinicians have to apply that. So I don't go in with a checklist and say, okay, you deliver this A, B, C, D, E. It's Here's the patient population. Here's the recommendations for practice. Here are the parameters of practice. And now you need to apply it in real context clinical practice. And then I evaluate those outcomes rather than saying, okay, I'm going to give you this much. This is how you do it. It would be taking frontline clinicians throughout the country or in, as we plan, hopefully we'll be able to do in the state of North Carolina, across the state of North Carolina and say, these are your stroke patients. These are the criteria for good care. We're going to teach you those. Now go apply it and let me see if you have the outcome. That's pragmatic. And you would set what, what outcome measures you want them to? Yes, and, it, and, mm -hmm. and the outcome measures, and again, as, as, as we have discussed before, the outcome measures, the most meaningful outcome measure to the patient is what is my functional status? 
right? Can I not only get up and walk, but can I engage with my family? Can I manage my financial affairs? So the patients, every study that's been done and you ask patients about their value, it's always, I want to maintain independence mm-hmm. and be independent as long as I can. So that's your primary patient-centered outcome. But in certain populations like stroke, you also have to think about caregiver outcome. You know, can we marginalize the caregiver burden? If we can get patients better, there'd be less stress on caregivers. So those are what we call patient-centered outcomes. For health system outcomes, we're looking at very influential factors that drive costs. Did we reduce readmissions? Did we reduce complications? Did they have fewer falls and break their hips? Because that's important to the patient, but it also saves money to the system. So in this study, we are looking at functional outcomes. The most important one is stroke impact scale, which we developed from a patient perspective. But we'll look at readmissions, healthcare utilization, and things like how many days did you live in the community for a year that you were able to maintain independence and live in the community. Mm -hmm. Those are meaningful outcomes. Mm -hmm. Well, when people say Pam Duncan, a lot of us think uh, of the LEAPS trial. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, uh, that was a very valuable trial and uh, that sometimes you find out what you want and sometimes it's just as important to find out what you don't want. So how, how is your futures researcher directed by the outcomes of the LEAPS trial? What lessons did you take from that? Well, in designing a trial uh, of the magnitude of LEAPS mm-hmm. um, to get that level of $13 million of funding to have a national um, sample across Florida and California um, is that there had to be enough preliminary evidence from basic research and some small studies that Mm -hmm. said there was a likelihood that body weight supported treadmill training would work. Um, And it does work, by the way. Um, But it doesn't work superior to other less expensive interventions. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of reasons, we didn't think that was gonna be the outcome because it was thought that if you could, there was a whole physiological basis, which has not been substantiated now at all, that, oh, okay, you train at a certain gait speed, you'll get these automatic generators and you now can walk better. Um, But in humans, both spinal cord and stroke, that hasn't translated. Because if you think about the dynamics of movement, it's balance, adaptability, and walking at a certain pace and certain patterns. But it really comes out, and, and this probably doesn't sound well with most of my colleagues, it's almost like we were patterning, just like the o- overall, uh, the old Doman Delgado with CP. Okay, we'll pattern them, we'll get them to walk faster, we'll get the movement, but it really wasn't walking the way you walk. Suspending someone on mm-hmm. a treadmill mm-hmm. is not ecologically valid. Now, it may be a way to get you moving, but it isn't ecologically valid. But that, but you did improve walking, but, oh, by the way, you can get the same outcome by treating patients in the home, working on strength and balance, and getting them to embrace mobility. Mm-hmm. And where we have to be right now is, and this, it's been the real problem in healthcare. Everybody mm-hmm. wants the high tech. Sure. You know, they want the magic bullet. And yes, 
And there have been some great magic bullets, cardiovascular surgery, cardiothoracic surgery, total hips, total knees. Those are, those are pretty good technologies that have helped us um, in survival and function. But the majority of patients don't need all that levels of high technology. They need to learn how to self-manage their risk factors, their health, and their mobility, and be able to embrace um, training in the context of their home. And so that's the significance of that study. The most mm -hmm. disappointing thing to me was that my co-investigators were so invested in that outcome um, that it, the results created a lot of conflict. But if you look at history, if you look at history, that happens all the time too. <laughs> you know, it takes courage to stand up when something that you just believed in doesn't work and you just have to say, well, I just got to move on, right? Well, that reminds me of something you said your mother used to say to you. Let me see. I think I wrote it down. You're, you're smiling. I didn't write it down. I just, I'll, I'll see if I can paraphrase it. Nobody's better than you. Something along the lines of do the best you can. Uh, anything said behind closed doors will eventually come out. And girls stand up for what you believe in. And girls, <laughs> girls stand up for. <laughs> and I have a feeling you do. Well, I I I reflect as that as a virtue and sometimes a, a challenge. Um, I really think a lot about um, the virtues it takes to to have a profession or live life or engage in meaningful relationships and. We all strive to have great virtues, and, 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 and we do. But I think that one of the great um, assets that I've had is I had the courage to stand up in the face of adversity mm -hmm. when it really wasn't the most popular thing to do, um, but it was the right thing to do. And I would say there were two things that not only did my mother teach us that, she demanded that we live that. And in the rural community I grew up in, um, one of my mother's friends had a young child with Down syndrome. And it was a pretty much a rural, very parochial community, and everyone knew everybody, it was related to everybody. And most of the uh, community kids, they would shun her, right? and um, wouldn't play with her. Mm -hmm. But as children, my sister and I were, uh, every Sunday, we were invited her to play with us and to engage and um, um, embrace her into our community and other people in the community wouldn't. And my mother just insisted, and of course we were young, and that insisted that she come, that she have the same opportunity of play that others did. So that was a very young lesson, but probably the hardest lesson. And as you're a teenager, you always like, oh, mother, I'm going to shoot you. But there was also a, a, a young guy in our community who was actually my age. We were in seventh or eighth grade, and he was, he was a very slow learner, and he wasn't doing very well in school. And 
and bullying was common then as it is now. And so they would call him names. They would call him pig and they would really put him down. But his dad came over and asked that I tutor him. And I said, oh no, I have to tutor him? Yes, my mother said. So, <laughs> so every day after school, Gene came to be tutored. And boy, we were never gonna call him pig. And so, but of course you're seven and all the kids make fun of you, right? Because now you are the, you're, you're Gene's girlfriend. And I would get on the school bus and they would make fun of me and I would come home crying. She would say, girl, just quit crying. You're gonna go out, you're gonna do the right thing. And that was just, that was the ethics we were brought up with, that you, you did the right thing. You might be criticized. You might come home crying some days. And believe me, in my career, I've come home crying many times. But at the end of the day, did I do the right thing? Yes, I hope so. Well, I've heard you were there at the first CSM. <laughs> okay, so when was it? Well, the first one I remember, I was trying to think, it was, it was in Washington, D.C., so it had to be the mid-'70s, right? And it was okay. cold as heck, as cold as it is here in Indiana, <laughs> colder. And we were in the Hilton over in Washington, D.C., and um, I was at the University of North Carolina as a clinical practitioner, and I was so impressed that Billy Nelson, Charlene Nelson, who was on the faculty, um, I was coming to the CSM and she said that I could ride with her. So I got to ride with a big time academic to the CSM. In those days, there may have been several hundred people. There wasn't very many. And you just started developing a community of networking. And so the great, great, great thing that I've had in this profession and in this career is that you just learn to network with people and get to know them and learn from them. and offer them opportunities. Now, I, I can offer a lot of people opportunities that they may not have had. So it, I truly am fortunate that immediately in my career I became involved with the APTA and networking. So that was a fortuitous ride. It was. I got pneumonia on the way home, though. <laughs> <laughs> not so good. So um, I've heard the direction of your next research project, but I also know that you're very involved in advocacy. So are you going to be spending more time in that role, and what's your mission there? We have to be advocates, um, and we have to, um, but we best advocate by providing the product. So I think where we are, and as you review what CMS really wants, and as a country, we have to control the cost of health care. And CMS is just asking especially in post-acute and rehab providers, give me a quality product that is cost-effective and at least will optimize the outcome. So that's, that's a big ask, but that's really what they need. Mm -hmm. So I think what we do is we have to do the research, we have to do comparative effectiveness, we have to change practice quickly, and then you go and advocate with CMS, um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid can, Services, to here's your evidence, and that's what will change because they are going to be driven by can you deliver better care at better cost. So I can't go to Washington and pound on or come to Washington and pound on my chest and say, oh by the way, here we are, um, aren't we great? No, we're great, but here's the product we can deliver, and this is what's meaningful to the 
population as well as, as to society. Now a fun question. What's a pamphlet? <laughs> What's a pamphlet? You know, you reflect on your career, and um, we all have great strengths and weaknesses. And one of my weaknesses is, as someone said, you know, being around Pam Duncan sometimes is like being in a hornet's nest, right? <laughs> and you're in there weaving, you're doing everything right, but oh my gosh, you better do it, right? So I think, you know, it's like, really? Really? Is that what you're going to do? And so you're a little bit too reactionary. Sometimes jump to conclusions too much. So okay. as you age, you can tame that. <laughs> uh, one of my uh, uh, former students at Duke University reminded me that um, in 2007, when I came back to teach uh, there, and I hadn't taught in primary curriculums in a long time, I told the students to be prepared when they came to class and gave them a very specific assignment that they had to watch the uh, video of the NIH stroke scale so that they could see the dimensions of impairments in stroke. And they came to class, and I asked them how many viewed the videotape, and only one I had, and I dismissed the class. I told them to come back when they were prepared. <laughs> and some people <laughs> might tell them that's a pamphlet, but these three students last night will never forget it. They said, we become prepared. <laughs> <laughs> so what advice do you have to either a therapy student right now or a new therapist to be prepared for the changing healthcare environment and uh, changing PT practice? Well, as I reflected in the Angel we Cook and had time to um, visit Australia on the Fulbright this uh, summer, I was really impressed with um, the curriculum that Catherine Dean had established. Mm -hmm. Not to overload the students with techniques or think that they have to be perfect in a technique, but they are challenged to be critical thinkers who um, can adapt and evolve. And really, it's a life learning process. And I can honestly say, I don't think I've stopped learning. And it's those are the skills that will give you rewards in life in many ways. And quite frankly, it just takes a lot of tenacity and perseverance. You don't give up. Right? That's right. And there is, there is no certain answer. And it's ability to be comfortable with uncertainty and make decisions in the presence of uncertainty. Sir, uh Roberta Newton said that uh, you better tell me a good story. I better tell you a good story. She said that she that if if you didn't, that she would have a story she would tell me. What would Roberta be referring to? I have no idea. I thought you might know. <laughs> well, this one might be a little bit crass, but <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but actually, there's a scientific reason, and. As I mentioned in my early career, I um, I really respected the 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 early leaders. I mean, people like Margaret Root and Sidney Brunstrom because they really were forward-thinking women who were trying to bring, at their level of knowledge, the physiological basis for practice. They really did, and Margaret Root really understood some of the sensory um, drivers of movement, and um, and so. 
but we evolve and learn and we get more sophisticated. But as I mentioned early in my career, I was really enamored with sensory stimulation to get patients to move. And of course, Margaret uh, Rood uh, used the vibrator and you use the, you know, the, the vibration response mm-hmm. to get the movement. But I quickly learned that well, vibrating alone didn't work. <laughs> and so I would get in front of class and say, well, just remember this, never vibrate alone. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> they marked that down in their book. Yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't understand why they were laughing. <laughs> but it's still true today. The sensory stimulation without the patient's effort and ability to think and drive the drive the movement themselves, it doesn't work. But I couldn't figure out why they were laughing when I was saying, Don't vibrate alone. <laughs> Is there anything you wanted to share at all? I've kind of gone through what I said. You know, I think in the end, as you get to the point in my career, um, you reflect a lot on things that you would have done better, and, and, and that's good. But, you know, sometimes you have to stop and say, you know, job well done. It's the best you could do. But I, I also uh, think that we have to have a certain um, discomfort with where we are all the time to challenge us to be better. And I think that's what's driven my career. I was never quite comfortable with where we are because Mm -hmm. we do evolve and adapt. And um, that uncertainty and discomfort was a big force in driving me to learn more. Um, And I would say in my wildest dreams, would have I ever thought that I could have had this opportunity to travel worldwide, to travel across this country, um, to meet so many wonderful people, but most importantly, hopefully contribute to better health care. All right. Well, I have a re- great career. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate you meeting with me today. Hey, and uh, I wish you luck in your next uh, next ventures.